Let's glorify God by receiving his word. Let's stand together. Our text today is 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. Again, that's 1 John chapter 2, 18 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Please be seated. Lord, now we ask that you would stir our hearts to desire your truth, that we would conform our lives to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In our text today, John uses some blunt language, some blunt language to talk about false teachers and our obligation to the truth. He's trying to get his audience to do two things. And these two things are still relevant to us today. And the first one is we must recognize the deceivers for what they are. We must recognize the deceivers for what they are. He starts by saying children, addressing his beloved children. This is his church, remember? He says, it is the last hour. The last hour. The end is nigh. The time is near. Jesus is coming soon. That's what he means. John wrote this 2,000 years ago. And so we might be tempted to think that John was wrong. It wasn't the last hour. But he's not. Today, we are still in the last hour. And we have been in the last hour since Christ rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. So time is running short. Jesus will return soon. And because of that, John says... As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. We're talking about Antichrist today. And it might surprise you to know that the only place in Scripture where the word Antichrist occurs is in 1 John and one time in 2 John. It's not used at all in the book of Revelation or in the book of Daniel or anywhere else. And the reason why I think it's surprising the Bible doesn't use this word very much is because we use it a lot. We use Antichrist fairly often. It's part of our common Christian language. Whenever we talk about the end times, we talk about the Antichrist, right? And when we do, we're typically talking about 
who we think might be the person who is the beast from Revelation 13. Someone who claims to be Christ but leads people astray, right? It's a figure who has a lot of power and authority in this world given to him by the darkness, right? The powers of darkness and who leads people to worship Satan. John's congregation was aware of this figure. They had been told that Antichrist would be coming. But that's not who John focuses on at all in this section. He says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Many Antichrists. Right? What's John saying here? Making the word plural, Antichrists, kind of breaks our categories. We aren't used to thinking about more than one Antichrist. But when John uses it, and he's the only one, remember, that uses this word, whenever he uses it, He's talking about more than one person in 1 John and in 2 John. Okay, so there are those whose behavior and teaching amount to being anti-Christ. So look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. That's a pretty broad category, right? Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is the Antichrist. Well, John narrows it down a little bit later in the letter. In chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Second John, verse 7, is also helpful. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So John is saying that the Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. The Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. There's no mention here of an evil political figure who leads people to worship Satan. The Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus came to earth with a physical body. That's pretty specific. Now, that doesn't mean that what we typically think of as the Antichrist isn't a particular person like we see in Revelation 13. There is going to be some figure like that. But John wants us to think about the Antichrist in these terms today. More than one of them. Antichrists. John's saying that these false teachers that he's been addressing, these deceivers, are Antichrists. Now that's a strong name to call a theological opponent. Right? We don't just go around calling people we disagree with Antichrists. So how does John get away with this? We need to remember John is an apostle, right? He sets up this authority at the very beginning of the book. The apostles were given the teaching, the gospel, that we have continued to follow to this day, right? The church in Acts chapter 2 dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. We are sitting in this room today doing the same. And Paul said this in Galatians 1.9, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay, Paul is also an apostle. 
If anyone could say to a false teacher that they are an antichrist, it's an apostle. And they are the ones, the apostles, were the ones that could define what that is. So John's telling his people, hey, these guys are false teachers and they are against Christ. Beware of them. So we can broaden the category of antichrist even further. It's anyone who teaches something contrary to the gospel. It's anyone who teaches something against Christ while claiming to have the truth. In church history, there's been a sharp line drawn between what is right teaching and what is false teaching. Right teaching, or orthodoxy, correctly summarizes what is revealed in the scriptures, and it follows the teachings of the apostles. False teaching or heresy is anything that goes against the teaching of the apostles or against the scriptures. Those are the same thing. Traditionally, there have been creeds and confessions that bring all of these pieces of orthodoxy into one place. Maybe you have memorized one of the confessions or creeds in your childhood or sometime in your life. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Uh, If you grew up Lutheran, maybe the the Heidelberg Confession. Uh, If you grew up Presbyterian, maybe the Westminster Confession. There's a bunch of them, and many of them are excellent. A lot of them are really good, and I'd encourage you to read some of those historic creeds if you're not familiar with them. There are creeds in the Scriptures. They've been around for a long time. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 contains a creed, and Colossians chapter 2 contains a creed. So as Christians, we've always summarized our faith with short statements, right? We've always taken and collected orthodoxy and said it in precise ways. The EFCA has one. We call it our statement of faith. Okay, so the doctrines in something like the statement of faith are those doctrines that we believe correctly summarize Christianity as revealed in Scripture. That's what creeds do. They contain the most important doctrines, So you might say that they are the doctrines and beliefs that separate real Christianity from false Christianity. They are first-order doctrines. First-order doctrines. If you don't believe them, you're not a Christian. The Trinity, the death and resurrection of Christ, salvation by faith, the virgin birth, These are all examples of first-order doctrines, and if you reject them, you're not a Christian. And that's what John is dealing with here. That's what he's dealing with in 1 John, a first-order doctrine. These false teachers are denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They're denying the orthodox understanding of the person of Christ, and they're teaching something different. And this makes them anti-Christs. When we get to chapter 4, we'll talk more about the importance of believing that Jesus had an actual body or has an actual body. It's a very important doctrine. We're going to dive deep into that later on in this series. But for now, we need to know that it is a core doctrine that the church has always believed that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He rose from from the grave with a body and rose into heaven with a body, and he will return with a body. Amen? That's not a small doctrine. Something to praise the Lord for. 
Anyone who denies a first-order doctrine like this and teaches something else is an antichrist. Now, again, that sounds really strong and aggressive. But all that means is that these false teachers are actively opposed to the truth. That's what John is telling his people. They're opposed to Christ. They are anti-Christ. It's definitional, right? It's calling these false teachers what they are. We shouldn't be afraid to recognize false teachers for what they are. It's helpful to know what is true and, and what isn't. But if we're going to do that, if we are going to say what is true and what isn't, we should know what is true, right? We should know the truth. And so John is trying to encourage us to know the truth and to identify and recognize what is false. John's trying to make sure his people know who the false teachers are. They're liars, according to verse 22. They are deceivers. Now, we're not just talking about anyone who lacks a good understanding of theology. You might be sitting there today and thinking, man, I I don't think I could define the Trinity or something like that. He's not talking about anyone who accidentally makes assumptions about God without searching the scriptures. There's always room for growth. There's always room to know God more. Praise the Lord. John's talking about those who know what is right and intentionally teach something contrary to the truth. That's what is antichrist about it. And verse 19 tells us that these people used to be part of the congregation John is writing to. The Christians in these churches would have known them personally. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. When we, when we typically think of the Antichrist, we think of a person who is outside of the church attacking the church, right? But here the Antichrists are people who used to belong to the church and have now embraced a different teaching and they're actively trying to lead others astray. John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now this statement, that they really weren't a part of us, because if they were, they wouldn't have left, that statement is striking. It tells us that those who are really saved by the power of Jesus Christ will not leave the gospel. They will not embrace false teaching. They're sealed by the Holy Spirit. They've been adopted into the family of God. That's a permanent thing. Those who are saved will persevere to the end, and those who are not saved will not persevere. But on top of that, those who leave because of false teaching show their true colors. And in that way, the church is strengthened. And God is glorified because it shows who belongs to him and who doesn't. The fact that these false teachers left is a good thing. It's that whole principle of addition by subtraction. The false teachers who actively embraced heresy, the fact that they left is a good thing for the church. Right? The whole group was strengthened. So we have to keep our eyes open. We should be careful with our doctrine. It matters. It matters what we believe about God. Right belief leads to right action and right worship. Let me say that again. 
Right belief leads to right action and right worship. Now, there are a lot of people who will say that believing is secondary to how you feel and how you act, right? As long as you come to God with a, with a clear conscience and a good heart and worship him as best as you can, all of that other stuff doesn't matter. And what I'm trying to say is if you lack a foundation of right teaching, if you don't know who God is, but you claim to worship him, you're doing it wrong. Right belief is the foundation. Right belief leads to right action and right worship. Now, I don't want to sound alarmist. I don't want you to be suspicious of every Bible teacher. I want you to give grace to people. But John wants his people to know that there are false teachers out there who are trying to lead them astray. And that's still true. That's still true today. So how do we prepare ourselves against false teaching? Well, we have to read the scriptures and know them. That's pretty obvious, right? We have to be acquainted with the truth and we have to read them faithfully. We have to know that the spirit will lead us into truth. But on top of that, we have to belong to a believing community, a believing, loving community who will help us in our beliefs. One of the last things James says in his letter is if you bring back a brother from the brink of destruction, you save him from, from fire and death, right? That's an amazing statement. That's what the community does. When we start to go astray, we need a community that will pull us back. When we have deep questions that we're afraid to ask, we can bring them to this loving community. And we're, when we're not sure if someone is a, a false teacher or if they're legit or not, we can ask the community. So let's make sure this church is that. A gospel-oriented, right-believing, loving, welcoming community where people can grow and know God more. Does that sound good? Amen? John wants his community to recognize the deceivers for who they are. And second, he wants them to remember two truths. Now, I'm, I'm sneaking two points here into one point. These two truths are related and connected together, though, so I can pull it off. Verse 20 says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Now, we're going to look at that second statement first. He wants them to remember. He wants them to remember what they heard from the beginning. First, what they heard from the beginning. Verse 21 says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. John knows his congregation. Remember, he's a good pastor. He knows that they know the truth. He's not writing to them a simple letter with the gospel again, as if they didn't already know it. In other words, he's not concerned about their knowledge. They have everything that they need. But sometimes, and you can attest to this as I can, we can fail to live up to and act upon the things that we know, right? So he urges them in verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And what did they hear from the beginning? the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember how John sums it up in chapter 1, verse 5? 
How does John sum up the gospel right there? We've been talking about it every week. God is God is light. God is light. They know this truth. It's not news to them. But they need to let it abide in them and rule how they live. They need to remember it every day. Verse 23 is the closest we get here to John restating what they need to remind themselves of. Verse 23 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. They know these truths, but they need to live it out. They need to hold on to the Son. They need to cling to Christ. And so he says, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. There's a lot of messages in the world that compete for our belief. There are a lot of false gospels and tempting belief systems out there. But if we hold fast to the message we received, we will abide in Christ. And the message is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that today? If we lose that foundation, we lose the Father and the Son. That's what John tells us. But if we hold on to that truth, and if we live our lives according to that gospel, we will inherit the promise of eternal life. And so verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. Now, we've already talked about eternal life in this series, at the very beginning of our series. But it's worth repeating now. In chapter 1, we heard that Jesus is the word of life. And when we abide in him, we already have eternal life because he himself is life. So when John tells us here that the promise that God made to us is eternal life, we should understand that he's saying our promise is Jesus. We have been promised Jesus. And there is no death in Christ. There is only life. So when we abide in him, we have life eternal. And we have it right now. We don't eventually get it. We have it right now. And if we're going to receive this promise, we need to remember what we heard from the beginning. It needs to abide in us. It needs to be a part of us, our everyday lives. It needs to control how we act and what we do and what we think. We need to hold on to the gospel. But John wants us to remember a second thing. He wants us to remember the anointing of the Spirit. Back in verse 20, again, John says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. So we're going to talk about that statement now. John doesn't talk about anointing very much. When he does mention anointing, it's always about somebody anointing Jesus. In fact, this word anointing isn't super common in the New Testament but it has very deep roots in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 40, the priests that would serve in the tabernacle are anointed. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed as king. It's almost always anointing, is almost always in reference to objects or to persons who are being set aside for service to God. And this anointing is a physical thing in the Old Testament. Oil is taken and it is poured or it is pressed upon a person or a thing. And when we see anointing in Scripture, it indicates that something is being set apart as holy unto the Lord. 
And Jesus is the greatest example of this. Jesus is the anointed one. And he was literally anointed in Matthew 26 by a woman with a flask of ointment. Maybe you remember that story. The disciples were a bit flabbergasted after this woman pours a whole uh, alabaster jar of ointment on Jesus' head because they're flabbergasted because that anointment was really expensive. It It wasn't cheap ointment, but... Jesus told them not to be upset because she's anointing him for his burial. He was anointed for death, set apart for death and for resurrection. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, which means the anointed one. He is the one set apart to be our substitute, our prophet, priest, and king. But here, we're told that we have been anointed. We have been set apart. And this anointing has been done by the Holy One, by God Himself. So what were we anointed with? In the Old Testament, people were anointed with oil. Jesus was anointed with ointment. But we are anointed with the Holy Spirit. We have been sent the Holy Spirit as our anointing. What sets us apart? What makes us different as Christians? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the very Spirit of God indwells you. If you are a Christian today, that's true. That's what anoints you, what sets you apart. And that's why John can say in verse 27... But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. If you have been anointed with the Holy Spirit by God and you have received the true gospel, what else do you need? You don't need another gospel. You don't need extra books of the Bible. We have everything we need in the spirit and in truth. So any religion that claims to have more to say than what we've already received is false. That is anti-Christ. Anyone who claims to have secret knowledge or they found some hidden code in the Bible, that's false. The Spirit abides in us. He is our anointing. Does that mean that, does John mean we have nothing left to learn as Christians? No, that's not what he's talking about. We always have more to learn, right? We always have more to learn about God and his word. We don't need anything extra. That's what he's talking about. We have everything we need in the Spirit and in the Scriptures. A common lie that we're tempted to believe is that we don't or we're not fully equipped to know God and to serve him. Satan is constantly trying to make us believe that. And that's why false teachers are so dangerous. Heresy, false teaching, they always try to do one of three things with Christianity. First, some heresies try to make Christianity easier to understand, or they try to make it simpler. Many of the very first controversies in the church, the things the councils were addressing, 
were these types of heresies. A good example of this is any so-called Christian group that rejects the Trinity, like Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll say something like, the Trinity doesn't make sense, so let's get rid of that. The second thing heresy tries to do is make Christianity easier, easier to follow. Right? A good example is something we've already talked about. You've been saved, and so now you can do whatever you want. You can sin as much as you'd like. Another good example is any group that says you have to do something in order to receive salvation. Now, that might sound harder, but salvation by works is always easier, and we always like it more than real faith. Just do this one thing, and you'll be saved. All right, give money, be good, get baptized, whatever. That's always easier than placing your whole life and faith in Christ and relying upon him for your salvation. The last thing false teaching tries to do is make Christianity more exclusive, like a cool group. That was also very common early on in in the church's history. There were certain groups who claimed to have the true teaching. They claimed that Christianity, somewhere along the line, got distorted And now we have recovered the true meaning of Scripture. A good example of this today is Mormonism. If you just believe this extra stuff, you'll be saved. This is the kind of false teaching that John is dealing with in 1 John. These teachers claim to have the extra good stuff. There's a group who's claiming to have the real truth, the secessionists, the ones who left And they're trying actively to lead some of the people in the church over to their side. But John wants them to remember that they've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. They have all the truth that they need. And they have the very person that will open up the scriptures to them. The Holy Spirit. What else could they want? The Spirit teaches us. This is a deep, wonderful truth. The Spirit teaches us all we need to know about God through His Word. Now, there's there's great helps that we can use, commentaries, Bible tools. We can gain a lot of knowledge in how to interpret Scripture, and that's wonderful and good, and the Spirit uses all of that. But you have the only tool you need to know about salvation and life, and that's the Holy Spirit and His Word. Praise the Lord. Jesus says this about the Spirit in John 16. Verses 13 through 16. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you notice Jesus' triune transmission of information. Jesus has all that the Father has. And he gives to the Spirit what he is to give to us. Everything the Spirit gives to us is from Christ. The Spirit guides us into truth. And he only does what God wants him to do. The Spirit is God, right? We can trust the Holy Spirit to give us understanding of God's word. Because this is the teaching that Christ has given you. Amen. That reassures me today. I don't have to go very far to find the truth. Right? It's right here. I don't need someone else. 
to come along and give me another book or additional stuff. I've got everything I need right here in the Spirit and the Word. This principle of the Word being the final authority for your whole life and for salvation is uh, deeply Protestant. Sola Scriptura. We don't believe that it is the only authority, but it is the final authority. We can look at other things to help us understand the Word, to help us understand who God is, but if it contradicts Scripture, it's false. This is your final authority. And so let me say this. If you're neglecting the Word, you're neglecting God. Some of us struggle with reading, and I get that. Uh, Reading the Word sometimes is, is difficult. But you have good resources to listen to the word, coming to to church where you can hear the word preached. You have many resources. And if you need help getting into the word or understanding the word, use your resources here at the church. Come to me, come to other pastors on staff. We want to help you get to know God's word more for yourself because you have the spirit. I'm not the only one here that does. You have the spirit and he will help you understand the truth. And again, that's really reassuring, right? You're never far from the Lord. This anointing, the Holy Spirit, is given to all who call upon Jesus Christ for their salvation. John says in verse 23, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Do you have the Father Have you confessed the Son? And are you anointed by the Spirit? You can be today. We'll look back once again to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have a lot of sin we need to be cleansed from. But he does it. He accomplished it on the cross. And he offers us his Spirit Praise the Lord.